This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Well, Jamar, two weeks ago, you told your Leave Loud story, and last week, you got me to tell some things, man. You got me to say some things on my Leave Loud story, brother. It was long overdue. I learned a lot about you and came away uh, just loving you and appreciating you more. So thank you for your courage and your boldness to tell that story. Man, I appreciate it. I just want to say thank you to everyone for your kind words, your comments, your messages. I cannot even read them all and keep up with them. But the ones I have been able to read and follow have really encouraged me and affirmed me in telling my story, especially my Black siblings. Thank you so much. Um, Your encouragement brought tears to my eyes and has lifted my heart so much. Man, I love us, brother. I love us. Yeah. Yeah. Lord made us. Made us beautiful. Exactly, bro. Now, this is actually my favorite week. I'm excited. The most anticipated episode for me we are going to bring on someone who is no stranger to the podcast, but not just no stranger to the podcast, but one of our friends, a true friend, Ali Henney, who is the vice president of The Witness and also the host of the Combing the Roots podcast and an incredible theologian voice. And Ali is always saying the thing. So I cannot <laughs> wait to hear what Ali is going to say, brother. That's right. That's right. Like Ali is somebody, I, I feel like she was Leave Loud before Leave Loud was a hashtag. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like she was going to say what wow. needed to be said uh, regardless. And, and, and she does it. This is what I told her. And I want to give her her roses publicly. I said she makes things better uh, mm. wherever she goes. She makes yes. uh, places better. Or if they won't change, she she's going to bounce because she's not going to settle for anything less than excellence. And a lot of that mm. comes from her ability to analyze a situation, especially for injustices and talk about it and say, let's do better. So I think, I think folks will pick up on that. I think so too, brother. You ready for this? I am so ready for this. Well, this is Leave Loud on Pass the Mic. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Well, Ali Henny, oh my goodness, thank you so much for being courageous enough to tell your Leave Loud story. You ready for this? I'm about as ready as I'll ever be, I suppose. I, I admit that um, I'm a little bit nervous and mm-hmm. I'll get for reasons that I'll, I'll get into here um, in a moment, but I'm ready. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it is an act of courage and bravery for you to tell this story. For the people who are just tuning in for the first time, they probably don't know you. Our audience is very familiar with you, and you've been on multiple episodes before. You have an entire origin story on your podcast, so I don't want you to have to rehash everything about your journey, but what is the general theme and gist and trajectory of your spiritual journey? What have you learned over the course of your your spiritual journey, your life, and and how those two things intersect. So something that I that I think is very important uh, to know about me, and it was something that I didn't really realize was important to know about me until a few years ago. But I come from a small rural town in Missouri, and so 
being a rural Midwesterner growing up in a predominantly white context, yet still being part of a Black community, my my little town and some of the little towns surrounding my little town had Black communities, albeit small Black communities, but still had Black communities. And there were, there were Black churches. And oftentimes, um, we would travel to other churches in, in other towns. We would go up to Kansas City. I grew up outside of Kansas City. And we would go, we would go into the city and, and go to churches um, sometimes. So that's something that um, I think is important to know about me, is being formed by the Black church. But at the same time, kind of living in this dual reality of my home was Black, most of my relatives are are black. Black culture was at the center of everything that we did. Yet I had to go out into a world that was predominantly white. And I know that that's the way that everybody, every black person lives. But I mean, where, where every person, every pretty much every person in authority, every person of significance, whatever, like they were outside of the outside of my home in the church. It was a white person. And so I think that that's something that is incredibly significant to, to knowing me. And also I, you, I talk about now, I realize now like, okay, I'm country. Like I'm like, I'm from the country. I grew up in a little farm mm-hmm. town. I'm from the country. We eat squirrel and raccoon and rabbit and, really? and okay. fish. Well, and like, what? For real, for real? For real. Yeah. For real, like my grandma, my, my grandma, my mom um, used to used to gather greens, like what greens, like not go out in the garden, gather greens, but like pick them from the wild. And like, I know, I know some greens. I don't know nearly what my mama knows. And my mama, like, she don't know nearly what my, what my grandma and um, what my aunties um, knew. Um, but yeah, like for real, for real, for real, that was, that was, that wasn't like all we ate, but that, mm-hmm. that was what we, that was what we ate. People would come by my grandma's house. People who in our in our community who hunted um, and fished, and they would bring my grandma. They bring my grandma coon. They bring my grandma squirrel. They bring her fish. Whatever. So yeah, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm country. Yeah, and that's so important. I think for people to understand about your background and how it shapes the appreciation of where you come from as well. And and I think all three of us in some regards are are navigating acknowledging and appreciating where we've come from, not forsaking it, but putting it in its proper context um, as we move forward. So you grew up in, in, in rural Missouri, and as you're growing up in a country area and a rural you know, context, how is faith different there? And how is the expression of faith different there? Because context matters, you know, your social location matters, how is it different than you know what is popularly portrayed in the broader American church context? So yeah, I mean I think that it's the black church. So again, for me, you know, it was the black church context. Um, but I feel like that rural stories are often stories, rural stories that are predominantly in predominantly white context stories are often um, overlooked. I think that we get like the Southern trope of like Southern, Southern black folk who live in black areas and, you know, white and they're, and they're adjacent to white people and whatever. Um, But it's very, it's very different whenever you are surrounded by whiteness in, in the way that I was. And so like many black people, like, like many folks who come from, from our tradition, we, 
go to church and it's a refuge. Our families, our homes are a refuge. And so something that I think is a little bit unique, though, about rural Black church is that there's not really denominational lines. Like, Mm, yes, you might have, like, there, there are Methodists, there's AME, there are Baptists, there are all manner of denominations, but we all fellowship with one another because, because being black, like in, in these towns that are, that are, you know, crushingly white, like that's like, that's the uniting factor. And so even in towns, um, cause there are, there are a few places where there might have even been multiple black churches and those churches would often fellowship with one another, even if they, even if they worshiped separately. And so I think um, that that might be a little bit different than in a city context where there are a lot of churches, even often of the same ilk that you can fellowship with one another and, and just be within a denomination and not necessarily have to cross denominational lines. But in the, in the rural Midwest, it, it's a lot, the rural black Midwest is a lot harder um, not to cross denominational lines because you'll just be sitting off by yourself. That's so good. That's so perceptive. That's really interesting. And I, I just got to say, my, my wife is from the Kansas City area. And so we often drive through Missouri and rural parts of Missouri. Um, there are places in Missouri that I'm way more nervous to be in as a black person than places in Mississippi. Uh, Missouri's on on some other stuff. So I'm just glad that you're able to, to process and synthesize this. And one of the things that I'm wondering about growing up in that environment is what is school like for you? Like, were you at an all-black school? Were you in, were you the one uh, chocolate chip in the mix there? Or, <laughs> you know, what was that like? Oh my goodness. So um, I'll answer that by answering you with um, a line from the movie Philadelphia, where um, Denzel Washington plays a lawyer who's defending um, a gay man with AIDS who had, um, who was suing his employer or something like that um, for unlawful termination. And so there's a, uh, Washington has a, has um, a soliloquy in this, uh, in, in, in this movie where he starts talking about, because there's all sorts of intersections. Of, of race and of orientation and all sorts of different things. And so um, Denzel's character starts going off about how he was the only black. And he just starts talking about how he was the only black in this context, how he was the only black in that context, how is it he was the only black in the other context. And that was something, um, I saw that movie, I think probably whenever I was 20, 21 years old, years old, long after it had come out. Um, and that was something that really resonated with me. Um, and so a lot of my experience growing up in school was being the only black person. Now there were black, I think there were probably, oh, maybe about eight or 10 black kids um, if even that, um, in my class, like in my, in my grade. And there were, there were always several black kids, you know, one or two, um, in, in each grade, um, maybe, you know, a boy and a girl, um, my grade, for some reason, there was, there was an abnormal, um, number, number of us, um, that were, that were there, but often just because of, um, because of academics and because of some other factors, there were times when maybe I wasn't the only black person in like my my grade school room, but then I would be part of programs where I would be the only black person. So um, I might not have been the only black person in my fourth grade class. There was one other person, one other black person in my fourth grade class, for instance, but I was the only black person in math club. 
And then whenever we started, got to where we were rotating classes and stuff, I was taking um, a lot of advanced courses. And so in in middle school and high school, oftentimes I was the only black person in in my class, and I was I was you know, the only black person in mm-hmm. marching band until my until my cousin came along. And so it was so it was kind of this this thing where it was like you know we we had one another a little bit, but often I was often separate from some of the other ones. And so I had a lot of times when I was the only black. And and I think even beyond that, there had to have been this added layer of being a Black woman as well. And was there a moment early in your education journey as you were maturing, getting ready to make life decisions, where that realization and the the even further separation from society and the further alienation from society really hit home for you as a Black woman? So this is something that um, I admit is probably sounds really, really super petty. Um, but being a teenager and teenage, you know, angst and whatever, something that I realized very early on was that my beauty did not fit the standard that mm. everyone mm. else was looking toward. Mm-hmm. So I came of age, I was born in 1985. So I came of age in the time of Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and all that. And of course, Destiny's Child was there, was there too. Um, Destiny Child, Destiny's Child, they were, they were the token blacks that were there. <laughs> yes. um, Aaliyah was, was there like early right. on that she passed away, you know, Brandy and Monica um, were there, but I, but I really came of age, um, you know, in, in, uh, 1999, 2000 era. So, you know, that was Britney Spears. That was Christina Aguilera. Um, that was Jessica Simpson. And so in the midst of all of this, you know, I'm seeing these, these white girls on TV and, you know, they, the way that they could do their hair and makeup. I mean, you know, yeah, my hair was relaxed, but like, I, I did, I just didn't, I didn't look like them. And, um, I was very, 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 very skinny. I was probably, that was five, probably five, seven, five, eight and weighed like, 115, 120 pounds. So I was mm. very, 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 very skinny. Um, so it wasn't necessarily like, because a lot of times I think that that our sisters will be like, oh yeah, you know, I was really curvy and I'm and busty or whatever. I didn't have that problem. Mm. Um, I did not, I did not have, I did not grow up with being, with being curvy or, or any of that. So I, so I didn't have um, those concerns, but just in terms of my facial beauty, just in terms of, of hairstyle and what I could do with my hair and that type of stuff. Um, I definitely felt that. And I definitely felt that also, cause you come back to that small town context again, where um there would be boys who maybe liked me. I'm not, I'm not sure now really, but there was also, there was also kind of this um, somewhat unspoken thing of, I maybe couldn't date certain people and that certain people wouldn't be um, allowed to date me, I guess is the more, is the more accurate way to say it. It wasn't my, my, my mom wasn't prohibiting me um, necessarily from going out with anybody. Um, But, you know, I had, I had a good friend, um, through middle school and high school that I look back and I realize like literally the only reason why we never went out on a date or anything is because, is because I was black. And, um, I knew mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. he, he had mentioned, you know, a few times that like, he didn't say like out now, like, Oh, my dad doesn't like black people. Um, but, but there were things, but I just, I just knew that, that his parents, but his dad specifically, um, was racist and that that wouldn't be something that would, that would be good. And so that was something that I, 
that was something that I had to live with. And I had to live with, you know, knowing, and I, I remember writing in, in my diary as a, as a teenager, um, talking about, you know, yeah, I don't have, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes. Like, um, you know, all the girls in my grade were, were bottle blondes, but still like, I, like I didn't have that look. And I knew that people that, that the boys didn't, weren't attracted to me because of that. And I was, and I was just, not, I was always kind of seen, and, and I attributed it to be the fact that I was a tomboy. Um, but then I started to realize probably about seventh, eighth grade, I was like, this isn't because I'm a tomboy. Like, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm still a tomboy, but like, I'm, I'm like, I, I don't dress like a boy. Like I, like I, you know, I dress like the other girls in my grade mostly. And like, I'm still not getting the attention, but anyway, mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So there's so many layers to this. Um, let me ask you, it, it, all of this is very sensitive, so feel free to answer, not answer. But first, did you go through a phase, junior high, high school, where you thought that you had to change your appearance to be more Eurocentric? Um, or were you so grounded with your Black family, your Black church, you're like, no, nah, that just ain't me? That that just wasn't that just wasn't me. Like I just like I mean I knew like like you know, I got like I like I got nappy hair and whenever and whenever I relax it like it don't it don't look like they hair. So like so like it's just like I like I knew that that I was unique and that was something that um, I think my my mom really instilled in me was that like you know there there are things that we just that we just aren't and that's okay because we're still beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so how does this intersect with the church? So now you're, you're growing up in the church and it's, it's black environment in a rural context, but now you're getting older and is there an exit from a majority black church space? Are you staying in that space? When does that turn a little bit for you? So I didn't like, um, become a member of or really regularly attend a white church until um, I graduated high school and went off to college. So whenever I was in high school, though, um, what my best friend invited me to her youth group, um, and of course her church was was all white, and so I would go to her youth group sometimes. And then whenever I was a senior in high school, um, I mentioned I think before that I was in marching band, and so um, I played I played the drums, I played drum set and stuff for a jazz band and for pet band and everything. And so there were some kids at a local Baptist uh, youth group that asked me, we, we all played together in band, different instruments and stuff, of course. And so they, they were praise band and they were looking for a drummer and they had tried several other people and um, it didn't work out. And so they were wanting uh, like a youth, it was a youth praise band. And so um, they, they asked me if I would, if I would play with them. And so I played with them. And so that was like the second half of my senior year. So I just went to like the youth group. Um, and then whenever I started dating my husband, um, now he's my husband, but then, um, my husband is, is white. Um, and he grew up Lutheran. And so I think I visited their church, like maybe, maybe once or twice, um, on like different occasions. But other than, other than that, so like I had been to white churches before. Um, but as far as like attending a white church and like, I'm going to go here and this is my church, um, that didn't come until college. Hmm. And so when did you and your husband get married? 
Uh, we got married in 2005, so we've been married for a long time. We got we got engaged wow. in 2004, um, so right before, um, I think it would have been like five days before I left for college. Um, we went to the same, we both we were high school sweethearts. We went to the same college, um, but I had, we were both in marching band our first year, and so I had, um, I had drumline camp. And so uh, before he had like regular band camp and then band camp, of course, was before the semester started. And so we got engaged five uh, days before I left for college, before I left um, for band camp. And then we um, got married in June of 2005. So right after we finished our first year of right, right after we finished our first year of college. So what was college different in the things that you experienced in high school? Was there a shift in what you were experiencing and also in your faith intersection? Or was it much more of the same just in a, on a different scale? Um, it was much more of the same on a different scale. So I went to college in Springfield, Missouri. Um, I started out at um, what was called Southwestern Missouri State University, um, but then it became Missouri State University um, my freshman year, um, or at the end of my freshman year. And so um, Ms. Springfield, especially at the time, I think it's down to like 88% white. But whenever I first moved there in 2004, um, it was in like the mid to upper 90s percent white. So, and it's the buckle mm, wow. of the Bible belt. I mean, I know a lot of places lay that claim to fame, but like, I mean- Yeah, that's Pensacola. What you talking about? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, but, you, but, but you can't swing a stick in Springfield and right. and not hit a church. Like, I mean, there's right. there's some, there, there are uh, two denominations that are headquartered there. Um, there, there at the time was like, I think like four or five different um, Bible colleges. And then a couple of them consolidated um, into, into one, um, into one uh, university, into one, into one network. Um, so it was just, it was like where I grew up, um, but on steroids in some ways it was, it was, I mean, where I grew up, I mean, was religious, but like, this was like uber religious, uber white, uber conservative, like uber whatever. And so going to college and not being, there's a black community in Springfield, but not like having the connection and not knowing anybody there. Like I was, I was disconnected um, from the black community. Now there was a church in the same um, denomination, the same organization that the church that I um, went to as a teenager was in. Um, And, and uh, my then fiance at the time and I, we, we visited that church and I was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is cool. But it's just, it's just like, it was just like in a lot of ways, what I grown up with. And not that there was anything wrong with what I was growing up with, but I was kind of just like, I don't know, I was just young and was just like, I want to try to find myself and like do something different. So, you know, I'm going to go someplace that's, but then also at the same time wanting to be part of kind of a similar type of denomination, which is like, okay, I'm going to go to like a different church. And so a different church just ended up being a white church. And I just, I didn't know anything about, about that city. I didn't know anything about Springfield. I didn't know how many black churches there, there were. Um, and there were, that was the only one in the denomination that I, that I had been in, but, but there maybe were a couple of others that I probably, now I know I probably would have been comfortable at, but at the time I had no idea. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith, 
and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. And you're you're not just a casual Christian who who calls yourself that, or you know this is a tradition you grew up with, so you know may as well claim the label. You're serious about your faith, and you've sensed a call to ministry. So I'm wondering where that came in, where where you started to to think this is this is something that I need to do as a central focus in my life. So God called me into ministry um, whenever I was 18. It was whenever I was with that Baptist youth group. We had gone to an event in Kansas City called Acquire the Fire. Um, wow. Oh, yes. Ron Luce. Ron, Ron Luce, Teen oh, Mania, okay. all that. And wow. so um, we were at Municipal Auditorium, and I was a student leader that I was in charge of some seventh grade girls, and those little girls went down um, to to the altar uh, to go pray. I had no idea like what was happening. I had never been, I mean, I came from black church, y'all. Like we opened the doors of the church and like, like in the Baptist church that I grew up in, you know, they opened the doors of the church and like put, put a chair in the front of the church mm-hmm. for people yes. to come sit down. Yes. Like that was, that's what we did in the Baptist church. And then the Pentecostal church, I mean, there was like, yeah, I mean, you would come up to the front, like if you wanted to join the church or if you wanted to whatever, but I didn't know what, like, I didn't know what getting saved meant. Like I had no idea. Like, I mean, I know, I didn't know what that looked like in that context. So all I see is these little, is these little 13 year olds bouncing and, and going down and going down like in the auditorium i'm like and none of the adults are moving and i'm like i ain't about to let these girl girls out here in the city like just, they just gonna go like and so i was like i was like okay i'm their student leader like let me let me like let me go down there and so i went down there and i was praying with them and as i was praying with them the lord told me that he was calling me to ministry and and at that point i felt called to be a youth pastor so as i'm entering into um these then white church spaces um in in Springfield, um, I know I, I had that in my heart. That so so you know, I was a teenager, I was a, high, a senior in high school. So whenever I start entering into those spaces um, in college, it's it's with in mind that. I'm going to, I'm going to learn. I'm going to get, I'm going to get training. I'm going to be able to somehow, I didn't really know how I had, I had no, I had no clue really what it, what it meant to, I knew that I was called, but I didn't know like what I had to do in order to to serve as a youth pastor or whatever. And I was just kind of trusting God um, to guide my path in that respect. Wow. So youth ministry, um, <laughs> this is definitely an intersection in our journey. You know, we have a few youth pastors on the staff at The Witness and what I what I learned very quickly about youth ministry in a black context was that it was very different than youth ministry in white evangelical context. Mm. And so the second you said, "Hey, I feel like God is calling me to youth ministry," as you were pursuing that call and getting that position and getting placed, were you? Did you have a racial? preference, I guess you can say? Were you thinking, oh, I'll be in a predominantly white context just by nature? Or were you thinking, hey, I'd love to be a youth minister, youth pastor at a black context, even though it wasn't very popular for black churches to have youth pastors, quote unquote, still really isn't, right? So what was your initial thought about where you would land in ministry? I just really wanted to go wherever God wanted me to go. 
like, and I knew that ministering to my people was was part of that. Um, but I wouldn't say that I that I necessarily felt a specific call to any specific context. It was just I just wanted to go where God wanted me to go and serve where He wanted me to serve, and that was it. Now, leading in that context, you probably ended up leading a lot of white kids, and you probably ended up serving a lot of white kids. What was the what were the racial dynamics like for you as a black yeah. woman? In youth ministry. So here's where we get to the goods. This is where. We, okay, let's go. Let's this is, go. This, no, is where, you know, this is where we get to the. This, is, this is the part. Stuff. Here we go. This is the part where you paid for. This is this is what you paid for. Okay. So, um, you know, I wanted to serve in youth ministry. Felt felt called to serving in youth ministry. So the church that um, I was in in college, the church that I ended up in um, during college. Um, it was a larger uh, Pentecostal church. It wasn't a mega church by any means, but whenever we first started attending there, I say larger in comparison to the churches that I had grown up in, um, larger. So it started out, I think, whenever we were there, I think we were about at about like 250, 200, 250 people. And, um, it, and it grew beyond that. Um, it grew beyond that. So I was, so I guess that, that I'll tell the end of the story first. So I was at this church um, that, that uh, my husband and I started attending whenever we were engaged, whenever we were freshmen in college in, the first, in our first semester of our freshman year, toward the end of the first semester of our freshman year, we started attending there. So at the v- December 2004, at the very end of 2004, um, we attended there from 2004 until 2011. And so over that time, I started out as just somebody who we were, we were young and they were like, oh, hey, maybe they will want to be involved in the youth ministry. And so I was like, of course, yes, I want to be involved in a youth ministry, knowing in my heart that I that I had been called to to be to, to be a youth pastor at that point. And so we had been started in the youth ministry, had been youth workers, and then as youth workers, we kind of became some of the youth workers who were um, more senior in position. And then eventually, um, the 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 student ministry there grew because of student ministry at the time, because we're talking, you know, two thousands, two thousands. So student ministry, I had, it changed, it changed, it changed, it changed. But anyway, don't get me started on that. Um, that's a whole other podcast. But anyway, um, so so they so the, our student ministry grew, and so um, I eventually became the um, high school pastor, and then my husband became the um, college and young adult pastor. And really, we we did that together. And then there was another guy um, who was the um, seventh and eighth grade pastor. And so um, we were there. And then um, the person who was the director of student ministries, and that's a whole other different story. But eventually I became the youth pastor slash director of student ministries, but I didn't have the titles or benefits that Mm. were consummate to that. And maybe we'll get to that story or maybe not. But anyway, after that, um, so I, so I didn't leave that church because of any of it, because of any of that directly. I could see now maybe where that maybe sort of factored in, but that wasn't really um, why we left that church. We moved um, across country to Virginia in 2011. So going back to so that so just telling you that tell you the end of the story first. So I so we were at this um, one church, and we actually went back to this church, and that's where the leave loud part comes in. But I'm getting ahead of myself now. Um, but we were at this one church. Okay. The part that we need to know, the part that we need to know for right now is that I was at this church um, for seven years. And so um, it had a, it had a different name then. Um, it was in, it was in a different denomination. Now it's non-denominational, but I'll get to that 
hopefully more here in a minute. Um, but we were we were part of that church, and it was predominantly white. But the youth group was diverse. So the youth group we had um, there was there's an Asian family that was part of the youth group. Um, there were there were kids um, who were Mexican who were part of it. There were there were um, a lot of black kids, a lot of white kids. So it was so it was diverse. So, um, and, and it was more diverse at the, than the church at the time. So whenever I got hired, um, cause I was hired to do bus ministry, which was sort of connected to the youth ministry. So I had, I was the high school pastor, um, but I was on staff at the church to, to do bus ministry and to run the, the transportation ministry. And so I was, um, one of, I was the youngest person at the time, um, on the staff, one of the youngest person, one of the youngest people that they had ever hired. And I was the first black person that they had mm. ever hired. Uh-huh. And so um, something that I will say, um, and this, I'm answering your question, but some things I want to say that, that I just want to put out there. Sure. I will say to the church's credit that um, the pastor saw talent in me. He he saw um, different things in me and wanted to, and, and, and realized I had a calling in my life and wanted me um, to be in ministry and wanted to support me in ministry. And so whenever he hired me, and because I was in an interracial marriage, there were a lot of people that had a problem in the church that had a problem with that. Hmm. And they left the hmm. church. Left. And so they, they they left the church. Now there was some other stuff going on that we the in the years I think from like two thousand and eight ish um, to about two thousand ten. There in this in this church there were multiple splits, like multiple people leaving the church um, to go to to go to other churches. There was somebody that started a church out of the church. Um, there was just a lot of turmoil and upheaval because we were um, le- in the process of leaving a denomination, and so that de- denomination that we were in was very legalistic. Um, something that I don't talk about a whole lot, but there was a point um, where I, I did not grow up this way at all, but. To be in leadership of this church, women had to wear long skirts and couldn't cut their hair. And so we were we were that kind mm. of hostile. And so I was just kind of like, okay, I like I don't quite understand this, but I feel like I'm supposed to be here. I don't understand this, but okay, whatever. That's that okay, that's what we'll do. So I mean, yeah, you know, there's there's my, my mother-in-law has all kinds of pictures of me because uh, she she's the one with the digital camera, has all kinds of pictures of me um with my with my long skirt and and Pentecostal hair or whatever. But that's but that's a that is a whole other story there. So there so there are people who are leaving the church over those issues because the church was like, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore, um, essentially. And so there were people who were living, leaving the church over that. But then also another factor, another reason why they were leaving um, was because of me was because I had been hired at the church and um, they, and there were people who were upset with that in addition to the other things that they were upset about. So in this context, setting the stage for this. So, so within this context, I'm, I'm, there's some of this too, that, that the pastor, again, to his credit, there, there were some elements of this that I did not find out much until much later because they shielded me from a lot of this. Um, they shielded me. I think both one, you know, because it's like, you don't, this is like terrible. These people are being terrible. Like let's, she's young. Let's not, let's not like have this wound her and scar her. But I think also there was an element of like, okay, Hey, let's, let's like cover how racist this really is. Because whenever I first started going there, um, I was not the only black person at that church. In fact, there was another, there was another black family that was there. And that was even why I was there. Cause I thought, Oh my gosh, 
because I'm keep in mind, I'm from a small town. I'm young, whatever. I'm like, there, there's another black person here. So clearly they're not racist. <clears throat> okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but so, so, the, yes. so the other black family, their, their presence in that space to me told me that it was a safe space. And so I just kind of, you know, was, was tiptoeing through the tulips and I knew that there were people in the church that had racist issues. Like I, like I knew that they, but, but I didn't interact with them and I'm just like, okay, well, whatever, like y'all, like, like you, like, I can tell that you, that you maybe have a problem with some things, but it's, but it's whatever. And so I'm uh, being a youth pastor in this context. And so there's that stuff that's going on in the main church. Um, but then within my youth group, we have like this, this dynamic of, of diversity. And so, you know, we've got, we've got Mexican kids, we've got kids that are, we got kids that are black. Um, we have a few Asian kids and stuff. And so I'm sitting with these, with these teenagers and I'm just like, man, some of y'all are racist. And like, it, it, and so like, you know, they're mm-hmm. just, they're just, and mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, they're calling in words or anything like that. But like, there was one time um, I had, cause I, I used to, I was high school pastors. So I, I used to have parties at, at my house, just my big house, no kids at that, no kids of my own um, at that point. And so like, I would just invite a bunch of the kids over. We get the church van, you know, we, we'd pull up, there'd be like, you know, 40 kids at my house. We barbecue, you have all the windows open, like whatever. And it would just, and it would just be, you know, party and stuff. And so I remember remember one time I was, I went outside on my porch. And so there was a, a, a kid and a couple girls, um, that, you know, he's talking. So he's talking about how, um, he's playing basketball and he was talking about how all the, you know, all the black kids were showing off. And I was like, or yeah, he's talking about how all the black kids and stuff were showing off. But, but before he even got to how the black kids were showing off, he's like, oh yeah, there are all these black kids that were there. And I was like, what does them being black have to do with the story? Cause like, I noticed that like they, they would always be like, whatever, you know, like, Oh yeah, this, these black kids or this, whatever. I'm like, so I'm just like, what does that have to do with the story? And so he's just like, well, it lets you know what kind of people they are. So I'm just like, okay, mm. but mm. what does that, what, what does that mean? So anyway, there's just, so there's kind of that type of dynamic. Um, I never will for, I had kids, you know, coming into my house um, wearing stuff that had like Confederate flags on it. Um, not, and they weren't wow, doing wow, it wow. like, to be to be like oh look I'm wearing this Confederate flag but like that was part of their wardrobe and like they didn't mm. think twice about showing up to their black youth pastor's house wearing that and so wearing a shirt that and it wasn't like you know a big Confederate flag it was like oh you know it was just it was it was somewhere like on the on the shirt or whatever um and I'm and I'm saying that not trying to justify it but just saying to, to try to paint the picture of they weren't walking into my house with like like wearing a shirt that was the Confederate flag like, like they're wearing some sort of shirt that has like fishing or something on it. And then somewhere within the design, there's, there's like a little Confederate flag yeah, in the corner or something. Statement. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, Heritage. so, so yeah. So that type of thing, but I never will forget. There was one time that there was a family um, that, that attended the youth group and um, we had dropped them off. The, the kids had, had done something and, um, had done something that, that was outside of normal like service times or whatever. And so my husband and I, uh, we took them home and I remember driving them to the house. And so at this point, one of the kids, um, had, there was a, there was kind of like a, a garage kind of apartment set up at their house. And so, um, one of the kids had moved into that. And so they did, but they didn't have like any curtains on, on the window in that part of the house yet. And so I remember looking in, so I'm sitting, we're sitting in the driveway and I remember looking in, and seeing a big Confederate flag 
in this kid's bedroom. Mm. But 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 hold on, hold on. On this Confederate flag, something I had never seen before, it said the South will rise again. There it is. And I was like, hmm. what on earth? And so it was something that I was just, I was just like, I I I don't know, I don't know how to how to think about that. I don't know how to feel about that. But whenever we get it, so those are all kind of, you know, okay, yeah, those are racial microaggressions or whatever. So let me get into something here for just for just a moment. In this youth ministry, I was one of one of the leaders. I, like I said, I started out. I kind of I kind of climbed the ladder, if you will. And there were several of us that had started out at kind of some of the same time. Um, and for whatever reason, I don't I don't really know, but I just had start, started to climb the ladder. I ended up. Um, it wasn't like there was a whole lot of us. It wasn't like the youth ministry was that was that big, but. I ended up essentially becoming like the second in command in the youth ministry, like, you know, the, like the associate youth pastor, but without, but without, you know, the titles and benefits that, that accrue there too. And so with that, and then also with my position in the church, I was, it was a church staff member and I, and the reason why I had been hired on the church staff was because there was, there was, there was a, a plan of succession, if you will, that was in mind. Mm-hmm. So they saw that I that I had a grace for youth ministry. The youth pastor who was there was, for whatever reason, the mentality was, you know, in this in this particular group, it was okay. Well, you know, you're be a youth pastor for about five years or so, and then you move on to something else. Right. And so, like, you move on to something else, like you become an associate pastor or something like that. And so, uh, initially, the conversations were, okay, so you're, you're going to come on you'll come on staff and you'll be here. And then whenever time comes for this other pastor to, to be promoted or whatever, then you'll be the youth pastor. And so this was, this was a plan like year that, that happened that, that was, that was hatched like years in advance, like whenever I was like a junior in college. And so then after I graduated, I took a job at that church doing best ministry. And so, um, as I kind of, you know, rose and ascended through the ranks, I'd be, I'm kind of the, you know, the, the heir apparent in some, in some ways to this youth ministry. And so it had gotten to where I'm, you know, I'm staff member, I'm, I'm second in command in this youth man- ministry. And so I have people working for me, um, a lot of the people who worked in the bus ministry were also youth workers within the ministry. And so I guess, you know, in some ways, I'm maybe their, their boss or whatever in, in two different capacities. And so I started to notice, um, I started to notice that whenever I got on staff, the way, because it was most, it was all, not mostly, it was, it was all white men and their wives that, that were, that were, um, leaders in this youth ministry. And so I was the only, um, woman that was like, it's not like, oh, you know, you're, you're youth ministers or whatever. And it's the couple and it's like, but, but the woman is like, whatever. I was the only, it was the inverse with my husband and I. Hmm. And so like, so there, there's so much more that I could that I could say about that at this point, but I won't. Um, but I but I started to notice that whenever I got on staff, that people just started interacting with me differently and started um, treating me a little bit differently. Um, people that 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 I had known for for a while just started to kind of treat me differently. And there were times when I would give a directive, and it wasn't necessarily even me giving the directive. It was something that my that that my supervisor that that my that, that that my boss was saying like hey can you make sure that everybody does this and there were some things as as leader of the bus ministry that I'm you know asking hey can you drive a bus hey can you do this can you do that and people wouldn't listen to me 
And I remember in particular, there was one person, there was one person, one white man who um, I had asked him to do something. I'd gotten him to, to drive a bus for me. So he was, he was doing that. So I'd asked him to do something or another in the service that night. And so he's like, oh, okay, well, you know, let me just, let me just check with, with pastor so-and-so. And I'm like, okay, but I'm asking you to do this. And he's like, yeah, you know, I just, I just want to make sure that I'm not like blah, 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 blah. And so I was just, so I was just really like, okay, but like, I'm asking you to do this thing. And so it is, as it is, I have delegated authority. So it is as if pastor so-and-so is asking you to do this. And so I just, I know, like I had several instances like that. So, but then what was, what was crazy though, what was, what was, what was so strange, I should say, is that I could ask my husband to ask those people I could ask my mm. husband to ask those people to do things and they would do it without there it question. Is. There it is. Without without questioning, without well, is this okay without whatever? They would they would do whatever. He's not the one who is actually like the leader, right? Like he's not the one who's the leader of the bus ministry. I am. And so something that killed me then was in so I won't even talk about the whole thing of becoming the youth pastor, but not like whatever, like there's just, there's just not time for that. I got other stuff I got to talk about um, that, that I know that y'all have me here to talk about, but, so, but I got a piece of feedback from, from the, from the main pastor of the church one time that was like, you use your husband as your main volunteer too much. And so in this, so he's saying all this and I'm just like devastating because, hmm. because the way of the feedback, there's, there's a whole story behind it, but I'm sitting here thinking like, I'm not wanting to use my husband as the only volunteer. He's the only one who will listen to me. <laughs> like he's like literally mm. the only person that I can ever count on and depend on. So then he's, he was comparing me to another white male leader who all these dudes were following. And I'm just sitting here like, so, so like this is somehow re- supposed to be reflecting bad badly upon me or reflecting upon me as like an area where I needed to grow. And I'm not saying that I didn't need to grow. What I'm saying is, is that there were all kinds of other dynamics that were at play there that like, yeah, people were listening to this other, to this other white male leader, but they weren't listening to me. And like, I wasn't like, like I, I, they just, they just were choosing not to listen to me. And so then there just got to be a point when it was like, okay, well, fine. If you're not going to listen to me, if you're not going to want to try to play ball with me, if every time I ask you to do something, you have something else that you have to do. Every time I ask you to come and help out an event, you have something else to do. Well, fine. I'm just going to ask the one person that I can depend on. And that person I just happen to be married to. And so, yeah, so that was, that was a, that was a trip. That was a trip. So I'm guessing all of this is part of a larger pattern. And, And my question is, um, if I'm getting the timeline right, like this is uh, early 2010s, around there. What is your church saying in general about like race and justice from the pulpit or Bible studies or, or, or how are they approaching any of those topics? So basically it was like, yeah, we want to have a diverse church because like, like we want to have a church that's diverse because that's like what heaven looks like and we want a church that looks like heaven. But there was no... Um, discussion or delving into racism at all. And this actually brings me to you, you teed me up here, Jabbar, for another for another story. So here's here so here's another here's another um here's another tale from the ratchetness. So the pastor of this church, again, to his credit, 
I'm saying that I keep, I want you to notice I'm saying this to his credit because there's, because there's going to be some stuff that hits the fan here in a minute. Um, maybe not a minute, maybe in, I don't know how many minutes, but in some minutes, um, there's going to be some stuff that hits the fan. So to, to, so to his credit, recognizing that looking around and saying our city is becoming increasingly diverse. We should reach out to the people who are moving into our city or some of the people who were already, who are already here. Why should we just have all white people in this church? Like it it should be like, it should be diverse. And so he felt a, a sense of calling toward that, toward that end. So, um, that was something that he really, um, really felt was important. And even it was something that was, that was aspirational, especially at, during those times, um, it, it changed, it, it did, it did change and he did, and he did get his, uh, multi-ethnic church. And hopefully I'll get to that point in a minute. Um, but that was something at that point that we were, that we were aspiring to. And so, um, I don't really, I can't tell you really any of the context of, of this because at that point in my life and when, whenever all this was going down, you know, I was 22, 23, 24 years old, 25 um, years old. And at that point I didn't talk to, I didn't talk about race to white people except to my husband because he, because, and the reason why I didn't talk Mm. about race to white people is because now I know the term for it, the language, I have language for it now, but because of white fragility, because anytime that I would try to speak about my experience, there'd be people trying to tell me what my experience was and trying to explain my experience to me. And that crap got on my nerve. And so I just, and so there's, so there's that aspect of it, but then there's also the aspect of like, I don't have to manage these white people's feelings and growing up in the context that I grew up in just as a matter of survival. Like I just learned, like you can't talk, you can't tell white people that they're racist because they'll, they'll get mad and that can, and that can, and that can end like a a myriad of different ways. And so I say all that, I give all that context to say then that there was a time that I was at a church staff meeting. And it was the senior pastor, the lead pastor. It there was the um, youth pastor slash um, administrative pastor. There was the music director, and then there was the person who was the children's minister at the time, and there was me. The children's minister was the only other woman in the room. I have no idea how or why the topic of race came up because again, like I said, whenever race came up, like, like I, you know, if, if I was directly asked my experience, maybe I would say something, but I often, but I didn't really say a whole lot because people would just start talking over me. Like I couldn't talk because people would start talking over me. So it was just like, like I just had learned, like, I'm not going to talk about it. So I don't remember what the topic was. I don't remember what, what was said, but in somebody said something that in that staff meeting on that day, something rose up within me. And I just said, you know what? My people did not ask to be here. We were brought here. Hmm. And then I, and then, Hmm. and then, and then I shut up. And so then the youth pastor slash administrative pastor slash my mentor slash the person who I had taken care of his kids, who we had spent hours talking together and mentoring and whatever said to me, well, if you don't like it here, why don't you go back to Africa? Oh, oh my goodness. Huh? So the room was quiet at that point. And I'm just, I am shocked 
that he would say this and I'm, and I'm mad. And like, I'm, I am wanting to go off and to go off about, you know what? I would go back to Africa, but I don't know where to go because people who look like you just stole my identity. I like, I like, I wanted to go off, but here's the thing. Here's the thing is that I knew that if I had read him to filth because he was my, because, 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 you know, he was a pastor at the church that I would have been looked at like I was being insubordinate. Mm. And so I'm looking around the room. Cause I, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm young at, at this point, everybody, everybody in the room, the, the youngest person, the next youngest person in the room was actually, uh, was actually him, I think, or maybe it might actually think the next thing, the youngest person was that was a senior pastor um, who was like nine years older than me. So again, so there's also like kind of the thing of like, these are, these are my elders also. Right. And so I'm just sitting here, like I said it, he said that to me. And so I'm just like, okay, somebody's going to say something. Fam, they didn't say nothing. Just and everybody just kind of looked. Let it ride. They just, they just let it ride. And so then every, so then everything kept, everything kept on going. And then that, and then that was it. But fam, that hurt. The other story that I'll tell from the, from this context, I'll tell from uh, talking about race and whatever. I noticed that in both that in everybody's uh, story so far, they shared about their incidents with what happened around President Obama becoming president. So um, when when President Obama became president, um, I shared an office with with someone. I shared actually shared an office whenever I was doing transportation ministry. I shared an office with the person um, who with with, the, with another person who was doing some secretarial work, and so. Um, the morning after the election, um, the children's minister came into my office, and she's like, and, and so it was me and the, and the and the secretary that's that's there, and she comes in and she's just like, oh my goodness, wow, you just must be so excited about what's happening, and mm-mm, so mm-mm. Uh, and so I'm like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, like I, like I am, and so um, I started talking about how. Um, my mom was telling me how the night before I, I talked to my mom and how she had said, how my mom had said that she never thought that she'd ever see a black man become president in her life. And so, um, the, the secretary proceed, I can't remember if she said it before the children's minister came in or after, but she said that she thought that Obama was the antichrist. Wow. And so I'm, t- so I'm telling this story about like what, like, like why this means a whole lot to me. And after that, she says this. And so, so, so in the midst of it, like in wow. the, in, in the midst of it, she said, like, like in the midst of kind of this conversation exchange going on. So music minister comes in and they're just, so every, so everybody's you know, ga- gathering around here, gathering around Puff the Magic, ne- the Magic Negris to listen to me regale them <laughs> of like whatever. And so, and, and whatever. And so I'm like, you know yeah, this is, this is huge. And so I'm just, I'm just talking about like, you know, I'm just like, you know, trying, like I, like I had, I had cried like all that morning. Like I, I cried like all that evening I'd gotten up in the morning and had cried. Like, I think I fell asleep like upstairs, like where my television was. I fell asleep like in front of the television that night and woke up and like cried like all that morning before work. And so like I'm coming into work and I'm just like, Oh my goodness on, on cloud nine, there's a black president. I can't believe this. And so then, you know, yes, the, white folks want to come around and, and listen and listen to the negro you know regale them of, of her tales of whatever i have no idea but all i know is that, that in my office there's like you know, this gathering now of of white people um just let's say gathering means like you know, 
three other people besides me in, in the office. And so somebody's asking me what this means to me. And so I'm telling what it means to me. And in the midst, I got, so I got Debbie Downer over here talking about how, how Obama's the antichrist. And so I'm just like, okay, this is like a serious vibe killer right now. Hmm. And so <laughs> like, like, so I'm just kind of looking at her and then just kind of, you know, still trying to talk and still just trying to, still just trying to speak the truth about like how I felt about it and how important it was and momentous it was. But it was like, wow, situational awareness, fam. Like you, like like regardless of what you think, like you you are going to insist that he's the antichrist right now. Like when somebody, when this is like huge for for people, and so so there were people who recognized the moment. Regard, I mean, I know that they didn't vote for him, um, but they but they recognized the moment. Um, but somebody else did. So so that that's that's my Obama election story with with wow. white people showing they tail story. But anyway, think- yes. Do you think some of this is some of this is due to that trope we hear among a lot of white people where it's like, I don't think of you as black or I don't think of you as that kind of black, you know, one of them type of things like that. Like you said, situational awareness. Was she that sort of oblivious to your to the fullness of your identity because you're in, in this predominantly white environment in this all white staff that it was just like literally colorblind? In that moment, I think she was being racist. Mm-hmm. 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 Word, yeah. word, yeah. You, you left in 2011, and right on the cusp of you leaving in 2011, right after that, it's Trayvon Martin, and then the string of Black Death and hashtags that we see Black Lives Matter. Where were you in that? Why did you leave in 2011? Where did you go? So my family, or I say my family, it was just my husband and I at the time, um, we relocated from Springfield um, to Fredericksburg, Virginia. And so um, a lot of that, I won't, I won't get into the whole, the whole story of that, but just essentially the Lord just let us know that our time in Springfield was done. And so we were like, okay. And there, and there wasn't, I'll say, there wasn't anything that bad, bad that happened. We left, um, we left the church, um, that we were at, that I, that we had served at for seven years. We left that at that time on good terms. Now we would uh, throw it out there again, that we had to leave this church again. And we did not leave on, on the best of, of terms. I, I won't, I, I could character, I should probably characterize it a little bit, a little bit differently, but anyway, but we, but we left that church at the time. We left it on good terms. It what there wasn't anything like, Oh my gosh, I got to whatever. It was just one of those things. It was just one of those moments where it was just like, you know, the Lord tells you to go. And so you go. And so we relocated to Fredericksburg, Virginia, um, which is, which is um, about an hour outside of DC, um, it's like 50 miles outside of DC. That's the better, that's the better way to put it. Cause traffic varies. Sometimes it can be two hours outside of DC, um, depending, depending on the traffic. Um, but it's about 50 miles from DC, from Washington, DC. And so we had moved there and, um, we, we really enjoyed it there. Really, really, um, really, you know, liked being in that area. And so we were part of a ministry um, that was very similar to the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. Um, we mm-hmm. had actually, whenever we lived in Missouri, um, we had, um, we were not like part of IHOP like at all, but like Casey, like at all for real, but like we would go, like like we would go to conferences, um, some, of, some of the IHOP conferences, particularly um, the One Thing conference that they always had at the end of the year. And um, we would, you know, I would go to the, go up, drive up and go to the prayer room sometimes because it was only um, it was only like uh, a couple of hours away from Springfield, and so um, we wanted to be a part of a community that that seemed like that 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 was like that because that seemed like what what 
what we wanted to do at the at the time, but we knew that we didn't want to go to Kansas City. So we had found this place in Virginia to to be part of. And so we moved out there and we were we were part of there. So I mentioned I mentioned IHOP. I mentioned that it was like IHOP because the distinctive of IHOP is that they um, have a 24 hour prayer room. And so they so mm-hmm. since 1999 they've been doing prayer 24 hours a day, seven, seven days a week. Um, and so there's there's a lot more to it than that, but that's kind of the thing. So um, where I was at in Fredericksburg, we also had a prayer room. Um, we were not 24 seven usually. Um, we, whenever I first moved there, we were 18 hours a day, five days a week. And so, um, where this particular, where Trayvon Martin comes in, whenever Trayvon had happened, um, the community was actually in the middle of a fast because we, we, we pray and, and fast a, a lot, which sounds, which sounds kind of weird. There's more context to it. Um, but we were, we were kind of in the middle of, um, one of those, one of those seasons. And so we were actually open, um, 24 hours a day. And so I remember, I, cause again, I didn't have any kids at the time. So I really wanted to do what's called the night watch. And so I was there. Um, it was, it was like early in the morning. So I'm talking like after midnight time, like the, like the shift was like midnight to, to six o'clock. And so, um, I was like, I was there midnight to six o'clock. So I'm in the prayer room It's probably, it's gosh, it's probably you know, two, three o'clock in the morning. Um, I'm working on a project for, for a conference, I'm praying or whatever. And somebody gets up on the microphone and they start praying for some man in Florida who Mm-mm. was defending himself, um, who had been and was defending what? himself and blah, 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 blah. So like there's so like, you know, the way that these rooms, the way the prayer room set up is that like sometimes like you have a person who might be leading the prayer, um, but then there's different points where, where people can just get up and they can just get up and they can, and they can, and during, during the, the, the way that the prayer is structured, they can get up and they can offer a prayer. So this, this person um, wasn't, they, they were quote unquote on staff, which doesn't really, it doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, they, they were a person who was a, who was a volunteer, who was a high level volunteer that was, that was working there, but they were not a leader in this context. It was just, it was just a person. And so this person gets up and they start praying this. And so I'm sitting here, I'm like, what are they talking about? What is he praying about? Then I realized like, hold on a second. He's talking about that dude that shot that kid that was holding the Skittles. Hold mm. up. He's praying, mm. he's praying for that? What? <sighs> and so I was just like, okay. So then, I mean, and so I, I'm a little bit petty. I'm not going to lie about that. And y'all, y'all know me. So y'all know. In the prayer room? In the prayer room? In the prayer room. Okay. No, that's what, what we love about you. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in, the prayer, in the prayer room. So, I, so I'm, I'm a little bit petty. So after all this, because that, that didn't sit right with me. So there was another point where it came. I think it was, I think it was during a time when you would do just like quick prayers. So I, so I prayed for Tray, Trayvon's family. And so, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't like, you know, like whatever about it, but I was just like, hmm, I'm going to pray for Trayvon's family. But in that context, like, you know, they, they really wasn't saying nothing. They weren't, they weren't saying nothing about no Trayvon. Like they were, they wouldn't try to say nothing about no Trayvon. They was just, it was just that one, it was just that one rando who, who, who had prayed for George Zimmerman because he was falsely accused and like, whatever. And I was like, boy, bye. You need to, you need to sit down. But anyway, (laughs) Now, in the midst of all of this, this starts the string of, you know, very prominent racial justice conversations in the church. And so was this a precursor of what was to come after in terms of those contexts, either not praying for this or not even addressing it, not talking about it, or praying for the oppressor or praying for the killer versus praying for the, the family? 
So there was just a lot of racial ignorance there. So like another example is we had like a, because you know, the prayer room is like a succinct, you, you the law of the prayers, not all, not all of them. People pray like, like verbally, but there's also like singing. People will spontaneous singing. People will set choruses. People will sing choruses. So I tell this story. You got to tell that Jamar don't know about that. I got to tell this story. So there, so there's one time. There, so, so this is, this is all during the same season with Trayvon with, with all the, that stuff you know we're, we're getting ready to pre- we're preparing for this big conference um that's that's coming up and so um Lou Engel who was a who was a figure um in the International House of Prayer he was in Virginia doing doing some stuff he was he him and some of the leaders of the ministry that I was part of they were doing some stuff and so we we were having just all these um kind of just intense prayer meetings or the prayer meetings that we were having every day because you know Lou was there because of all the the stuff that was going on there they were they were all the more intense so one time somebody and I, and I say it was one time but I think it's actually multiple times but there was one time that somebody said a chorus in the prayer room that was something like there stands Jackson like a stone wall rally around the Virginians. Mm-mm, no, no. <laughs> so, so I, I, if, I, if I'm what? lying, I'm, if I'm lying, I'm dying. So the context of this, uh-uh, the context of this is that because Virginia has a lot of civil war history, a lot of, lot of, I mean, you, where we lived in Fredericksburg was halfway between Richmond, which is the capital of the Confederacy mm-hmm. and DC. And so there was a lot of blood spill in Fredericksburg, um, lots of blood spill in, in Fredericksburg. And so for what I, and I can't even remember. And really some of it doesn't matter. I remember like, so, cause you know, they never, they didn't, they, these people don't never think that president Obama was, it was a Christian never, you know, we, we ain't going to acknowledge that or whatever, but their whole thing, you know, was abortion and oh my goodness, the blood being spilled of abortion. We don't want God to judge a nation, just all the other type of stuff. And like, let me, let me just insert myself in here and say, I did not believe that stuff. Um, it was just one of those things. It was one of those contexts where like the way that I approached this was like, I don't have to agree with everything that happens here. I don't have to believe everything that happens here. There, there are some things that I like and some things that I embrace. So I choose to, to like and embrace those aspects of it. But then, you know, like I'm going to leave some of the other stuff alone. So some of this, like, you know, Obama not being a Christian, like whatever, like I, like I left that, that nonsense alone because I knew that wasn't true and often told people that it wasn't true. Um, so anyway, so the context of this prayer is that, you know, for whatever reason, there's this, prof- there's this prophetic narrative, this, so we're getting into charismania here a little bit, but there's this prophetic narrative that they that they had, and so the the Stonewall Jackson, how he got his name was from that line that I quoted. And so somebody made that into a chorus in the prayer room, but the idea was like, okay, well, well, Virginia is going to help to to birth a revival, and God, like, there's there's just so much stuff that it would take a whole other podcast for me to t- for me to unpack why this exactly why this was happening. But but what you need to know for this to know why this was happening in this story is that there was a lot of baptizing the civil war in not like saying it was okay, but being like, yeah, we don't agree with what these people did, but there was so much like stuff because, because, you know, they, they, a lot of these people were believers. And so like, they don't, we don't agree with what they did, but then it, but then it made for a good story, essentially. Like it was good. It was a good story. It was a good analogy. It was a good way to draw people into, into some of the narrative that they felt like God was doing. Why they couldn't just, just do that. Like why, why they had to incorporate, the civil war and why they had incorporate all that stuff. I'll never know. What I will say, and the reason why I tell that story is because since then, 
um, because somebody actually brought this up. Um, Somebody who used to be there actually brought this up and uh, publicly and the leaders like in succession were like, this was so wrong. We're so sorry. We did this. We, we, we hate this. Oh my gosh. This was, this was bad. This was horrible. This, we we were really, really ignorant and this, and we regret this. And they, and so, I mean, they, they, they apologize. And I mean, you know, people, the people, some of the people who did it were, were people or some of the people who, who were part of all of this were people um, that, that I was friends with. And I was still just kind of like, wow, that's, that's, I remember being in the prayer room and just kind of being like, okay, this is weird. <laughs> like, why are, like, why are we singing about Stonewall Jackson? And yeah. And so, so all of this is happening in all this context. And so, Along about the time that Ferguson happened. So Ferguson, Trayvon, I mean, they wouldn't, they weren't looking for Trayvon. They wouldn't care about Trayvon. But then whenever Ferguson happened, that was a little bit of a different deal um, because it, because it really became um, a national thing. And so they felt like, because again, this is, this is aspirational multi-ethnicity. Like they, like they, like they don't dislike black people being where we were on the East coast, there was actually, there, there was a, there were a lot of black people in the prayer room whenever that was happening. A lot of us were like, the heck but the but that's a whole other that's a whole other different conversation um but like it was the the way that they approached some of this stuff was they wanted to talk about it and they but they didn't know what they were talking about and they wanted to talk about it but they wanted to but a lot of the way that they wanted to talk about it um, often catered to white fragility, and often there was a lot of both sidesism. Um, often there was there was always the need because because in, in the in the charismatic prayer movement that was that was what I was part of um, was that there, there's this need to there's, there's this reflexive need that everyone feels and everybody everybody I guess has every movement I guess has this in some way but there's like this reflexive need to bring it back to abortion. And so if you're going to be black and if you're going to talk about race, then you've also got to talk about the evil of abortion and you've got to, and you've got to renounce it. And so, so it's like, so in order to show that like, you're still cool, you like that, that, that you're, that you're still, that you're still in line, that you're still solid. So you would hear a lot of the narrative of, of black oppression in the, in America, it being framed in terms of abortion and like, Oh, it's the black genocide and it's all this stuff. And it was just like, why can't why can't we just talk about racism? Like, why do we have to bring why there's no other issue that y'all are really talking about? I mean, that like you're talking about other issues, and yes, you're likening them, you're you're, you're finding a way to to sew abortion back in with them, but it's like almost completely grafted into the race discussion. And so it's like you can't you can't get too far off the beaten path of of talking about it. Otherwise, like you, you, you got to, you got something that I noticed among a lot of black speakers in that, in that, in that sphere was, you know, they would maybe have a lot of good things to say about race, but then they always found a way to talk about abortion. They always, they always found a way to, to bring it back to that. And I'm just like, and, and the only thing that I could think of the only reason why I could think of why, why anybody would, would do this. And maybe because maybe I, I mean, heck, I probably did it a couple times myself of not wanting these people to think that you, that you were, that you were suspect theologically somehow. But anyway. Wow. Yeah. Cringe a lot of so much of this.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.